Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Connor Fraser. And I'm your host, Anna Lazarus. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. COVID-19 has upended and disrupted the lives of many Canadians, but none have suffered more than our elders. As the virus infiltrated our communities in March and April 2020, horrific scenes unfolded at care homes across the country. Thousands of fatalities, seniors left for days without food, and even opportunities to wash. Perhaps even more tragic is that despite many warnings, numerous investigations and special conditions, elder care in Canada has been pushed aside for decades. The pandemic simply exposed an issue that had, in a twisted way, existed in silence and outside of the public spotlight for some time. Today, we try and understand how and why Canada arrived at this moment and what we do differently to ensure our elders get the care they deserve and want. Our guest today is Mr. André Picard. Mr. Picard is a health reporter and columnist for the Globe and Mail, where he has been a staff writer since 1987. He is also the author of five best-selling books, including, most recently, Neglected No More, The Urgent Need to Improve the Lives of Canada's Elders in the Wake of a Pandemic, which was nominated for the prestigious Donner Prize in Canadian Public Policy Writing. Mr. Picard was named Canada's first public health hero by the Canadian Public Health Association as a champion of mental health by the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health and received Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal for his dedication to improving health care. Good, good afternoon, Mr. Picard. Thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Headlines. Um, how are you doing today? Great. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. We wanted to start with a question that probably isn't asked very often, but should be. So in a perfect world, free from constraints, what would elder care ideally look like? And how would Canada's elders want to live out the golden years of their lives? And how is this different from what they're getting in the current system? I think the ideal for all the elders I talk to is people want to age in place. They want to live out their lives with as much dignity and freedom as possible. So I think that's actually a realistic goal for for the vast majority of people. Uh, We just have to change a bit of the structure of society, the structure of our healthcare system. And then we have to recognize some people will need more care. So we will need uh, institutions like long-term care homes, but for a lot fewer people, because not everyone who's there should be there. And those homes should actually look like homes uh, and feel like homes, and they should be caring for people to the end. So to me, it's all about, uh, I think, what elders want, what everyone wants, regardless of their age, is to uh, live to their full potential and live with dignity and without suffering. And I think all of that is doable. And if it isn't, we should do a better job at uh, finding out how to make it doable. I think everyone tuning into this conversation knows that COVID-19 in Canada was particularly hard on the elderly. And across the world, we saw tragedies unfolding at long-term care uh, facilities and frustrated relatives pleading with authorities for answer. And and so to motivate the conversation, I wanted to ask your perspective on whether um, Canada's 
system of care for elders was an outlier in its failings during the pandemic. Do you see any evidence to suggest that Canada's shortcomings are, are unique compared to our peers in the OECD, for example? Yeah, I think our failings are not unique. You know, we know that worldwide, the vast majority of people who died from COVID-19 uh, were older, were largely over the age of 70 and 80. Now, what we should take from that is not what a lot of people send me in emails, which is, oh, they were old, they were going to die anyhow. That's simply not true. This added tremendously to the uh, reduction in life expectancy. Uh, it shortened the lives of people. Uh, people over 80 live a long time. So do people over 70. You know, if you live to 65 in this country, you can expect to live on average more than 20 years more. So 85 is pretty young. That's an average age where people are going to die. So this killed a lot of people unnecessarily. And most of those deaths, uh, more than half the deaths in Canada happened in institutional care. So in long-term care homes, uh, they consist of a little less than 7% of the population. So you put those two stats together, 50% of the deaths in 7% of the population, that's atrocious. That's a, I call it in my book, a massacre of neglect. Uh, these deaths were largely preventable or avoidable. They could have been delayed. M many of them could have been avoided with different, fairly basic public health measures. So we did fail horrendously. Now, your question is, did we fail more than other countries? Uh, not early on in the pandemic. Early on in the pandemic, uh, everyone was hit really hard. Uh, Spain, uh, countries like that, we saw warnings come from there. Spain and Italy had massive deaths of elders before COVID even came to Canada. And we missed that opportunity to learn. And then it was repeated here. Uh, I think where Canada distinguished itself and not in a good way is we've continued to have an excessive number of deaths of elders. Uh, to this day, we have roughly 50 deaths a day today, which is down considerably. But every one of those deaths, uh, with few, few exceptions, are still older people. So it's still this massacre of neglect is still happening. I'm wondering if you've noticed any internally here in Canada, if any of the provinces fared better? And if so, what was it that they had put in place? What kind of structures made it that they were able to protect their elders that way? I think the, the data is not so much by province, but by institution. Uh, the one province we know that was harder hit by all than all others was Quebec. Uh, Quebec, uh, I think it's largely was bad luck. They were hit first by COVID. Uh, so, you know, before they knew what hit them, there was many deaths. Uh, Quebec has old infrastructure. It's an older province. And Quebec also, because it provides much more public funding, has a lot more people in institutional care. So they had that trifecta of bad things. So without a doubt, Quebec is much worse. So how did the other the provinces fare? More or less the same. Uh, what we saw is uh, homes where uh, there were not multiple beds in rooms. So where you had beds, uh, rooms with three and four people, the death rate was massive. Uh, 50, 60% of people in some homes died. And that was largely because we just created the ideal conditions for the spread of a respiratory illness among a very vulnerable population. So not a surprise to anyone knows, even you know, knows biology 101, it's obvious these were dangerous. Um, the, what we do know, we don't have a lot of data in Canada. We're not great at collecting and publishing data about elders. We prefer to not think about them. Uh, but what we do know is, uh, to me, one of the most interesting stats is in Ontario, uh, private homes did worse than non-for-profit homes, but municipally owned homes did best of all. 
So that's a really intriguing issue. If you unpack that, why did that happen? Well, I think part of the reason is uh, private homes tend to be older. They do have more people to the room. So I, I'm not sure it has to do with their profit model. But the reason municipal homes did better is because they're very connected to the community. People acted swiftly because they, you know, the mayor literally who runs the municipal home by default is literally walking down the street with the uh, children of people in these homes. They took, they acted really swiftly because they knew there would be consequences. In most of the other provinces, this is very far removed from the reality of politics, so it was easy to to ignore. So. Uh, it's good to remember, as I said before, there was horrific things that happened in our homes, but the majority of homes in Canada had no deaths, which is again, evidence this was preventable. Um, and most of, most of that happened because the homes took individual action to protect their, their uh, charges. You know, they made people wear masks, they limited the number of workers who could come in, etc. Uh, the main reason COVID spread is because our policies made for uh, workers working multiple part-time jobs. So the workers brought COVID into the homes. People tend to not leave these homes. So the workers brought it in and through no fault of their own. I'm not blaming them. They're victims here too. They had to work in multiple facilities because the employers don't want to pay them benefits. Uh, so they do all this piecework. So sorry for that long-winded answer, but uh, lots of stuff to unpack there. Thank you. Uh, I think we want to get into talking about you know, the, the challenges faced by workers uh, going into some of our later questions. So that's great. We've already talked about that. And just to kind of the main takeaway from your answer, I, I'm gather that not really any one province with the exception of Quebec potentially stands out amongst the others, but it really comes down to the institutions, uh, the, the specific factors that contributed to municipal homes performing better, or in Ontario's case, the, for, the uh, private homes performing worse, although potentially not due to the, the for-profit model. Um, and just uh, turning back to your book and our listeners, um, I, I encourage you guys to get out and, and take a look at Mr. Picard's book because it is fantastic. It's a very easy read. Uh, so I get the sense from reading your book that a number of complex uh, economic, social, political factors really contributed to the situation where the needs of uh, Canada's elder population are, is no longer met by the systems of care that Canada offers. So what is the, the historical or the story here to tell? I think it's exactly what you said. It's a multiplicity of factors. It's no one thing. But I think if you boiled it down, it comes down to uh, many of our public policies are very ageist. Uh, we take older people for granted. Uh, we don't, you know, have this assumption they're going to die. Uh, they're not economically productive anymore. Once you're retired, you almost cease to be a citizen. What matters in modern society is uh, generating income, et cetera, not being a so-called burden on society, even if you've worked for 50 years. So we have these ageist policies. Uh, we have an outdated structure of our health system. It's really designed to deliver acute care to relatively healthy young people. Uh, it's not designed for the demographics of today. So there are a whole bunch of factors. So my book uh, that you mentioned, it's not about COVID. It just talks about COVID at the beginning, uh, shining a, a harsh light on all these things that allowed for this disaster to happen. So it's you know 50, 100 years in the making of neglect, and it all came to a head during COVID. Uh, the other part of that, answering your question, I think, uh, the thing that has I got the most feedback about the book about is people were very surprised by the history. So I talk about the history of long-term care. Uh, this is actually 
has nothing to do with healthcare. It came up through the penal system, through the jail system. So back uh, in the, you know, goes back to Elizabethan times, uh, people who were indigent were not exactly well treated in society. We didn't have a social safety net, uh, but we didn't let them starve to death. So we gave them their gruel, we put them in institutions, but we made them work for it. And that was true of older people. And this surprises many people, but this system existed in Canada, in Ontario specifically, until the 1960s. Uh, early in the 1960s, there were still people in what were called uh, old age homes who wore uniforms like prisoners, who had to work you know, in the garden or cleaning or cooking. And then they lived in prison-like facilities, 10 or 20 to a room, uh, with rules they could be punished. Uh, uh, there was a famous report published in 1961 that ended uh, ended this system because it was so horrific to the public. But you know, elders who uh, wet themselves, for example, there's no continence pads at that time. They'd be locked in the basement to be punished. This this was a reality of how we deal dealt with elders in my lifetime, and the system that culture still exists to a certain extent. Uh, if you've ever visited, I know a lot of young people don't visit long-term care homes, but if you ever visit one, a lot of them look like prisons, and there's a reason for that. Some of them actually were prisons at one point. Uh, so the, that history, I think, really helps us understand how we had some horrific outcomes. Uh, thank you, and and I agree. I think the the most fascinating part of the book to me was definitely the, the history and you know how it, it's so tragic that the system has almost you know, develop, we've slept walked, we've been sleepwalking into uh, the system that we currently have today. And I, I've been into a couple of long-term care homes where my uh, relatives live. And I was, you know, it's not a place that I would ever uh, want to end up. So I understand the apprehension of many people. Thank you for tuning in to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. This week and next, CIUT is hosting its fall fundraising drive, and we are asking our listeners to give generously. Any donation you give will be greatly appreciated and allows us to continue delivering high-quality programming. Visit ciut.fm donate to make your contribution. Back to our conversation with Mr. Picard about transforming elder care in Canada. I want to go back uh, and talk about Medicare uh, a little bit, because another part of, of the book that struck me was how Canada has a Medicare system that, you know, has, it, it includes certain types of care and then it excludes certain types of care. So things like pharmacare, dental care, um, even, even care for elders is not included. So can we take a moment to understand how Canada's signature Medicare system developed, and more importantly for our conversation, why was elder care not included in that system? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question, and I have a whole other book on that, on the lack of policy reform in Canada, but I won't pitch that one to you today. But the, the short version of this is that we created a Medicare system in the 1950s and early 1960s, and we very smartly created it for the demographic of the time. So the demographic was, this is uh, right at the end of the, or beginning of the baby boom, uh, so it was a system built for uh, women giving birth. Uh, it was built for men, work, young working men having heart attacks. So it was about acute care. And we didn't really, there wasn't a lot of institutional care back then. And the only institutional care, elder care that did exist was what I explained. It was this for indigents, so essentially prisons. Uh, the same is true of psychiatric hospitals. Why do we not cover mental health? 
because this was part of the, the prison system until the 1960s and 70s. So we just didn't think about it. It's considered something else. So with the system just developed and it's a great model. Canada has a fabulous philosophy, which no one should be denied essential care due to their inability to pay. No better philosophy exists in the world, but we are frozen in time so that uh, what we define as essential is only hospital care and physician care. That's in our legislation. That's what essential means. And that's, what, that's not what essential means in reality in the 21st century. We need some dental care. Uh, we need physiotherapy. We need home care. We need long-term care. Uh, we need hearing aids, glasses. None of those things are covered uh, strictly by Medicare. They're covered by a, a mishmash of other programs which are fundamentally inequitable because they're not the same everywhere in the country, depends on your income, so they're means tested, uh, depends where you work, if you have private insurance. So there's no rhyme or reason to what, why many things are covered in our country. So I often say that, uh, you know, we're, we're very proud of our Medicare system and rightly so, but I remind people that we have the least universal, universal healthcare system in the world. So the only thing that's really covered for everyone is hospitals and doctors. And, you know, if we're going to be honest about this, not all of that is essential. We should probably get rid of some of that, and let people pay it privately or with their private insurance. But we should make sure that a lot of the other stuff is covered publicly. So that's what distinguishes Canada from European Nordic countries is they've kind of adapted to their changing demographic. So they cover, if I look at a country, I talk in the book a lot about the Netherlands, uh, about Denmark, which are really, uh, mo really good models for elder care. And the reason they're good for elder care is because they have good care overall. The reality is most people who need uh, health care at any given time are older people. That's just natural. As we get older, we need a little bit more help. So what they do is they cover about 80% of everything. Your dental care is covered, et cetera, but then you have to top it up. So you have to buy some private insurance. Uh, out of pocket, Canada has a lot of out of pocket spending. It's almost unheard of in other countries because they clearly delineate. Here's what's covered by the public. And then you better get some private insurance to cover the rest. In Canada, we don't do that because we're not really sure what's covered, why or where. So we have a, an employment-based system of insurance. So if you're if you have a good full-time job, you probably have good supplementary health insurance. But if you don't, if you're a gig worker, if you're a student, uh, if you're a, an immigrant, you have terrible health care because a lot of stuff is just not on the table. So we really have to we have to modernize our system. We really just have to bring it into this this century. Uh, I say in the book, uh, we have an Edsel of a system and we need a Tesla. You know, we have this 1950s model and we need a 21st century model. Yeah, I think since you're mentioning Denmark, I, I'd like to know a bit more about the model. And I think our listeners would benefit from understanding, you know, what from what from that model can be applied to the Canadian context and obviously what can't be applied from the Canadian context. So just a few lessons that, you know, our policymakers can pull from there. Yeah, so I think you make a good point at the beginning. We often just say, well, why don't we copy some other country's system? And you can't do that. Uh, healthcare is really wrapped up intimately in culture and politics. So I don't think we can just take somebody else's system, no matter how good, and implement it whole hog. But we can learn lessons. So what does, uh, so I, I talk a lot in the book about Denmark, because I really think it is a fabulous system for elders. What's different is they don't spend more money than us. They don't have better technology. They don't have better workers. 
but they have a different philosophy. There's a real belief in the collectivity there that we're more individualistic. We're kind of halfway between the US and, and Europe, but it's, there's less individualism. So how does that translate into public policy? Well, they have explicit public policies that say, we value our elders and we're gonna allow them to live in the community until it's no longer possible. So that's very different from Canada. Uh, so if you do that, once you have that philosophy, building a system is pretty easy. So if you're in Denmark, you're going to stay in your home and you're going to get provided with home care uh, when you need it to the point where it's impossible to do that. And where does that impossible come? Well, that's it depends. Uh, but, you know, if in Denmark, you can get up to 10 hours a day of home care. You can have a nurse come into your home three times a day if you need it before you get institutionalized. And they do have institutions, because I said earlier, some people are going to need them, especially if you have uh, advanced uh, dementia and you wander, uh, it's going to be a danger to your health. So you need that uh, being surrounded, that encadrement, as we say in French. But the neat thing about Denmark is long-term care homes actually look like homes. You know, I can walk down the street in Copenhagen, as I've done, family home, family home, nursing home, family home. You don't really know the difference. There's only 10, 12 people living there. A nurse lives there. Uh, you know, people don't dress in any special way. They just look like other uh, people living in the community. So it's, it's really about a philosophy more than anything else, I think, is what we can learn. And we just don't value elders in our society. We, when you start to get a little rickety in Canada, poof, off you go to a home. And where are these homes? Uh, symbolically, they tend to be located by the side of highways, outside of cities. Uh, it really, our philosophy uh, is not written down, but in practice, it's out of sight, out of mind. Uh, we don't want to see old people. We don't want to see people with dementia. Uh, I say in the book that, you know, we have almost 400,000 people in Canada with dementia. We should see them every single day. We should see them in our grocery stores and on the streets. And we don't. And we, again, when you go to a country like Denmark, you do see them. Uh, the care homes that they build, build are built beside schools. They're built beside daycares. Why? Because they want young people and old people to interact because it's good for both of them. There's nothing more lovely. I've seen this uh, little kids, little four-year-old kids jumping around with the 80-year-olds because kids are not judgmental. They just accept them for what they are. If the people with dementia say silly things, who cares? The kids think it's funny. Uh, the older people love it. They love the action, the activity. So it's, none of that costs money. So it's really about your thinking. And, and we don't think about older people in a, that they're valuable and other cultures do. Just a quick reminder that CIUT FM is kicking off its fall fundraiser drive. Visit CIUT.FM slash donate and please give generously. We are a nonprofit community radio station. Your contribution is needed to enable Beyond the Headlines and all the other programs on CIUT to continue delivering high quality programming. This week, we have an all-star guest, Monsieur André Picard from the Globe and Mail, who is here to discuss his research about Canada's elder care system. And now, back to the conversation. That, that comment really resonated with me, how a lot of homes are located beside highways and driving from, uh, you know, from Burlington, where I live, to Toronto, I, I noticed that there are so many homes beside the highway. And it's really tragic because, like, like you say, uh, people should be integrated into the community and they want to be integrated and continue to take part in the community. But it's just so unfortunate that in Canada, it's the, the model is out of sight and, and out of mind. And on, on the note you mentioned about um, 
home care in Denmark, how this this is a society that tries to keep people living independently for as long as possible. Um, I wanted to ask you about whether whether Canada might naturally move towards that uh, model on its own. We we have kind of a, a dualist uh, structure in Canada with with Medicare providing some, but also the private sector uh, providing a lot of a lot of benefits and. Uh, a lot of some some recent surveys have really shown that the the attitude towards living in long long term care has has turned uh, dramatically negative. So a lot of people, my parents, definitely do not want to live in long term care. And I wonder if that naturally is going to lead for more demand for alternative options and higher pay for workers that supply those options. That mean this is going to naturally arise in Canada without any kind of government intervention. Do you think that is a fair? Um, assumption to make, or do you think th- that it's not, and and for what reasons? Yeah, I think uh, you know realistically there has to be a government policy for this to to happen uh, because it's very costly. Uh, the reality is even now, uh, long term care can cost anywhere from two thousand to fifteen thousand dollars a month, uh, depending if you get three hours of home care a day. That's about twenty five hundred dollars a month when you do the math. So this is very, very expensive. So there has to be some government assistance. Uh, and the reality is governments, you know, I said it's not covered by Medicare, but there are many public programs. We spend $37 billion a year on elder care. So about $10 billion in public money already goes to home care. But it's just not spelled spent well. Uh, Our home care system is designed to send people home earlier from hospital after surgery. It's not designed to keep people in the community. And I think, again, we need that philosophical shift. So the the argument against home care is always, well, it's unaffordable. Uh, We can't possibly provide 10 hours of care a day to some people like they do in Denmark. My answer to that is, well, why not? Uh, Denmark doesn't spend more money than us. It's about choices. home care on the surface or institutional care on the surface is cheaper because you have this economy of scale but building the infrastructure is super expensive so it it you know when you do the math home care is actually much cheaper it's a better investment so why i guess the underlying question in your question is why don't politicians embrace that and in my cynical moments i think it's because of optics Uh, you can cut a ribbon on a long-term care home uh, you you know, it's visible. It has somebody's name on it. Uh, when you invest in home care, that's invisible. It's great. People live at home. Their families are happier, but it doesn't give a political payback. So when you ask me, will this happen on its own? Uh, my answer is, well, what happened in the wake of COVID? COVID, we saw, you know, we've had 45,000 deaths to date, uh, 22, 23,000 of them in long-term care. What has our only policy response been? it's been to announce that we're going to build more long-term care homes. Let's give people more of what they don't want. Uh, I saw a poll a couple of weeks ago that said 90% of people never want to go to a long-term care home. Uh, 45% of them said they dread the idea. Uh, A smaller percentage said they'd rather die than go to a long-term care home. Why are we building more long-term care homes? We should be taking the wrecking balls to them and replacing them with something else, which is uh, helping the community. I, I think a, a, an interesting follow-up uh, to that question, because you say how the optics really favors politicians just um, cutting ribbons and doing things that are visible, but not might not necessarily be 
the best or what our elder populations want. But so I'm curious to learn your thoughts on why um, Canada's elders have not extracted concessions for better care from political parties. And from my perspective, you know, this is a very large constituency. It's a growing constituency with generally high voter turnout and concentrated interests. So wouldn't we expect them to consistently vote for the political par parties that promise reforms? And why, why has, hasn't this materialized into better outcomes? Yeah, and that's a great question. And you're right, this is a really powerful voting block. But the problem is that we uh, are often our own worst enemies. And I say we because the color of my hair, I, I'm an older person myself, I'm getting there. And we don't, older people don't like to admit that they're going to get old. They don't like to think about ever needing care. Uh, that's going to be the neighbor. I'm always going to be fine. I'm going to live to 90 and I'm going to run a marathon every day and I'm going to, you know, golf and I'm going to go to Florida. It's going to be great. Nobody wants to admit they're getting old. So they kind of, we're very, shy about talking about this. Uh, the other part of the equation is Canadians love their healthcare system. The polls tell us that. But the polls also tell us this. People don't vote on healthcare. Uh, when push comes to shove, when they go to mark their X on the ballot, it's about gas prices. It's about highways. It's about inflation. People don't vote on healthcare. And what does that, the message that sends to politicians is, I don't have to do anything about this. Uh, the other part of the political equation is uh, when politicians do do something, people are never satisfied. So it's always seen as a lose-lose. You're better to say nothing about healthcare than actually make any promises. Because say you promise a billion dollars, you're going to get crapped on. People are going to say, why isn't it five billion? They're not going to say bravo. So it, there's a real cultural issue, po political cultural issue here that really makes it difficult to bring about change, even for well-meaning governments. And sometimes they go through little uh, periods of saying, oh, we're going to do something about this, but it tends to just get drowned in uh, other politics. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT. My name is Connor Fraser, alongside my co-host Anna Lazarus, and we are joined by Monsieur André Picard to discuss Canada's elder care system. CIUT is a nonprofit community station and this week we're kicking off the fall fundraising drive. Anything you can give helps Beyond the Headlines and all the other CIUT shows to continue delivering the programming you love. Visit ciut.fm slash donate. Thank you. You know, I'm kind of wondering, just as a follow-up, we just had an election in Quebec uh, and we had two party leaders uh, offer $2,000 a year to seniors uh, as a way to help them stay in their homes. And to, to me, $2,000 just feels, I don't know if the word is symbolic, uh, underwhelming, but I'm kind of wondering, are politicians kind of, they are talking about healthcare and they do understand there's that issue, but instead of putting in the policy work to address it, they're focusing on, you know, one-time payments or yearly payments to kind of avoid the long-term institutional work that needs to be done. Yeah, it was really a pittance, you know, when you consider the the massacre that happened in Quebec, it's just, it was baffling to me that this was not an election issue in any way. Uh, the $2,000 was tokenism. The really reality is the vast majority of seniors are healthy. They don't need that. Uh, the people who really need it need a lot more care. So it, it benefits no one to do things like that. Now, to be fair, Quebec did undertake some pretty good initiatives. Uh, it took a lot. It took thousands of deaths for them to do it, but they doubled the pay of workers 
Uh, they hired 10,000 new workers in, in care homes. Uh, they've undertaken this project to build what we talked about, these really home-like homes, uh, at least a few of them. So there's a lot of good stuff going on, but it's just not enough. And Quebec was a perfect example. Nobody voted about elders. They voted about uh, you know, language issues, they voted about inflation, they, et cetera. So it, it, healthcare always gets forgotten and elders forgotten even more. But you, you did mention there were uh, obviously institutional reforms that were put in place or that have started to be put in place in Quebec and I think Ontario as well. Um, can you kind of tell us, give us an overview of what has changed since pre-COVID and should we be satisfied? with what's been going on? I think what changed, I think what COVID exposed most of all was just the, the staffing issues. So we had some, you know, that's the number one issue in Canada today is staffing in healthcare. We have a real crisis, a real lack of doctors and nurses and technicians, and most of all of uh, assistants, uh, you know, they have different names in different provinces, but you know, people who do the hard labor at the bedside, changing people, dressing them, uh, feeding them, uh, toileting, all that stuff personal support workers do. Uh, th there's no shift that's ever filled. So every sh there's a shortage in every single home in everywhere in the country. So it's a, a really dramatic loss of people. And why? Uh, first of all, their pay is not great. Their work is literally backbreaking. Um, lousy benefits, really terrible work environment, really toxic work environment. It's really, really hard. So I talk in my book, I talk to several personal support workers who, you know, what's their dream? Their dream is to get a job at McDonald's because it pays better and they have better benefits and you don't have to be lifting people who are, you know, so sick that they're essentially dead weights. You don't have to lift them five times a day and hurt your back and be on disability. So we, we have to create uh, better work conditions. Uh, there's a sociologist at uh, York University, Pat Armstrong, sort of a, a legend in the field of, of elder care. And she has a famous uh, line. She says, the conditions of work are the conditions of care. If you treat the workers badly, the care is going to be bad. And if you wanted, you know, there's no better example than COVID. The workers were treated horribly. They had to work in these multiple facilities uh, who were the last people to get masks in Canada? People working with the most vulnerable Canadians, those at highest risk. We just treated them horribly, and no wonder thousands of them left their jobs. I, I also thought that was that was pretty tragic part of your book when you describe how people that you've met say that they would rather be working in the fast food industry because that is where they can actually get better pay, better hours, as opposed to working in long-term care where it's just, you know, the hours are so grueling and the pay is just so low uh, that they're, they're looking for other opportunities. Um, so what are some, since work in this sector is just notoriously grueling, how, what are some ways that you might propose we give those individuals a better deal? Does it come down to maybe talking about unionization? Does it come down to better uh, standards, better training? Um... Yeah, so there is a fair bit of unionization in the sector, but the, the unions are not powerful because there's lots of turnover. So the wages are, are relatively poor. Uh, I mentioned Quebec. Uh, early in the pandemic, uh, there were workers in Quebec getting $13 an hour to do this really, you know, to be taking care of your elderly 
grandparents who really needed help. So that now their wages have been doubled to $25 an hour, but that's still not great in the grand scheme of things. So yeah, wages are part of it. Uh, benefits, the ability to take sick days. So a lot of workers went in, even though they had COVID because they didn't have sick days. So it's about pay, it's about benefits, but it's mostly about the work environment. So you have to have filled shifts. You have to have enough workers to do the work. Right now we don't. Uh, elders are treated like an assembly line. There's no time for workers to interact, to actually treat people like people. And the workers hate that. They want to talk, uh, interact. Uh, again, if I go to places like Finland or Norway or Denmark, the workers sit down and they have tea uh, with uh, people who live in these residences. And you say, oh, well, why are we paying people to have tea? Well, because they're doing stuff. That's a good way to get a sense of how they're doing. Uh, what is their mental state? What do they need? We don't do any of that in Canada. We do a checklist of tasks. Uh, you're, we're going to change your continence pad at 4 p.m. It doesn't matter if it's full at 8 a.m. or 2 p.m. This is when it's scheduled to happen. It's not a good life. We're going to feed you exactly at uh, noon, but because we don't have a shortage of workers, we're going to start putting you in the lunchroom at 10 a.m. And you're going to sit there in your wheelchair for two hours until everybody's there. It's really undignified the way we treat people. And again, it's not a fault of the workers. Uh, who would want to work in those conditions where you're just doing stuff to people and they're crying and they're begging you, you know, to talk to them because they're lonely or they begging you to change them because they're wet. And you say, sorry, uh, my list says that's not going to happen for seven hours. I'm hungry. Sorry. Next meal is six hours from now. It's not a way to live. Uh, we call these places nursing homes, but they're not homes. It's not a home if you don't have agency, if you don't have an ability to live how you want, at least to a, a basic minimum, like eating and going to the toilet, et cetera. Uh, we have people who are not incontinent. Many people in these homes are not incontinent. We put them in diapers anyhow. Why? Because nobody can help them walk 10 feet to the bathroom. We don't have staff. So I could go on and on about this. It's it's emotional for me. You know, I've had parents in, in these institutions. I spend a lot of time in them, and it's just horrible the way we treat people. Uh, it's no wonder no one wants to go there. Before we continue, our host radio station, CIUT 89.5 FM, which is housed within the University of Toronto campus and is Canada's largest community radio station, is hosting its fall fundraiser drive. Beyond the Headlines is incredibly lucky for the opportunity to air on CIUT every Monday, but we need your support to continue providing you with policy-oriented content. Any donation you can give will go towards supporting high-quality community radio. You can donate online anytime at www.ciut.fm donate. A lot of that resonates, but particularly just the the, core, the the relationship between the quality of work and then the way these uh, folks are treated in their homes. Have you noticed amongst employees uh, in these homes, whether private or public, is there a tendency towards hiring racialized workers? This is, I think, a trend in Canada, particularly in, in nursing homes and uh, lower lower end healthcare. I say lower end because we pay the workers less, not because it's less important. Uh, to go ahead and you know look for work outside of Canadians, so you know have people come in and give them work visas to do this work because Canadians just don't want to do it. 
So I am kind of wondering if that extra dimension, that extra layer of having, you know, racialized folks, minorities who are already having a tough time be placed into these really difficult positions. Yeah, that's the that's the reality in a capitalist society. People with the the lowest skill level, often low language levels, they get the worst jobs. So that's always been the case. Again, during COVID, this was brought under the spotlight. You know, is it right? No. But is it a reality? Yes, it is. Uh, and, you know, I think COVID reminded us just how essential uh, essential workers are. You know, we started calling them rightly essential workers and not low wage workers. Those are different things. Uh, so I think it, it really underscored how essential they are, but uh, somebody has to do these jobs. So it's natural that it's going to be newcomers, it, but that doesn't mean we have to exploit them. It doesn't mean we can't pay them a decent wage. Uh, maybe we should be doing things like giving them language training along with their training on how to bathe people so that they can communicate better. Uh, because a lot of that is people just work on getting those skills so they can get out. But we can we have to make these jobs jobs that people want to stay in you know it's not horrible work i have someone uh, my book isn't all bad news stories so i have uh, uh, profiled someone in the 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 book who uh, a filipino woman who came to canada uh, as a nanny this is a, a very normal route uh, come as a nanny uh, do your one or two year contract then you become a personal support worker you build up your language skills you go to nursing school and then you become a, a licensed practical nurse. So this is a good way to go, but we have to make that path easier and we have to make it something that people want to do. So the worker I talk about in the book, she loves the work she does. She loves working with older people, but she just said, just give me more time with them. Give me the ability to do the job the way I can. Uh, give me a decent living wage. 20 years, her salary is exactly the same today as it was 20 years ago. Uh, the cost of living isn't her rents three times what it was, for example. So we have to, again, just people treat people fairly, uh, regardless of, of where they're from. I, I get the sense that the people in the sector are, are very underpaid. They're very overworked. So sort of the elephant in the room is that a lot, a lot more money, potentially a lot more money is going to need to be spent to to give them a fair deal and to enable them to work with dignity in the sector and, and provide the care that, um, you know, that elders, that elders need. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, because, because more money might be needed, what in your mind is, is the best political path to feasibility? Like we talked earlier, how this, you know, healthcare in Canada seems to be a dead issue for politicians. It's not a very sexy issue that a lot of people want to jump on and they don't get credit for it. So, is there is there a path for uh, a political party to champion this issue and really uh, get some some payoff from it? What needs to happen for us to get there? Well, I'll, I'll answer that in two parts. The first part is: Do we need to spend more money? Probably, because we neglected the sector for a long time. But we, as I said before, we spend a lot on elder care, but we don't get value for money. So if you look at the issue, say wages, wages are crappy. Uh, but some workers in this country, uh, say in BC, where I live, they get $27, $28 an hour. They're unionized. They have good benefits. This is a decent job uh, financially, but it's the work environment that has to change. So we have to make it where people stay. So regardless of what the wages are, a turnover is really, really expensive. You have to retrain people. So you have to make this job that people stay in for 10 years 
your costs go down dramatically. Uh, workers become more efficient. They can do more. They can do it better. So the, it's not just a cost. It's not just about wages. It's a whole bunch of factors that come in to the money. You know, turnover is very, very expensive. On the second part of your question, uh, the politics of it, I think it comes back to what I said earlier. People just have to make this an issue. Uh, earlier, I've been doing this for a long time. Earlier in my career, I was much more critical of politicians than I am now. But I, I recognize now that our politicians essentially lead from behind. They'll do whatever they think the public wants, and they won't do whatever they think they can, the public will tolerate them not doing. And that, unfortunately, is the reality in healthcare: is we tolerate mediocrity, and we don't vote people out when we have a crappy health system. We just go, oh, well, uh, you know, it's free. I guess it's not so bad for waiting 12, 18 hours in ER. Uh, you know, I don't pay for it. Uh, yeah, I guess my granny doesn't have the greatest room, but, uh, you know, it's subsidized. So we're, we're just way too accepting of just crappy treatment uh, that we aren't with other things in our lives. We wouldn't go around buying rusty cars, you know. Uh, we won't accept that there's potholes every second, every two feet in our, our highways, maybe every two miles, but not every two feet. So we, we just have to have better expectations and better standards and make that clear to politicians by voting on these issues. And, and I wonder if, you know, if the pandemic was, wasn't a big enough catalyst for reform and for Canadians to make this an issue, if anything will ever uh, be enough of a catalyst for reform to make this an issue, which is kind of concerning to me because, you know, what, what else, what else is out there? What else can really be a motivator for, for reform uh, than, than the horrific things that we've witnessed in the past two and a half years. Um, I, I want to also briefly ask about, um, about communities and how communities are designed or in Canada not uh, designed with our elder population in mind. So if we want to transition towards more people living at home and in their communities, um, you know, there's a number of things in your book that you outlined we could be doing differently. So for the people that are listening that are thinking about municipal politics and development, what are some things that they could be looking for and pushing for in their communities to ensure that they're friendly for people that are there that are part of the uh, Canada's elder population? Yeah, so the, you know, to set this up, as I said at the outset, very few people actually live in these homes, right? So it's less than 7%. So the reality is 93% of elders live in the community. So what we want to do is keep them as healthy as possible. So how do we keep them healthy at home, out of institutions? Well, you do that by making communities more elder friendly. So what does that mean? Uh, having decent sidewalks, it's a whole bunch of, whole bunch of little things uh, that we should be doing anyhow. So sidewalks, uh, nice sidewalks with good lighting uh, and the ability to walk to the grocery store or get their groceries delivered uh, for no charge. Uh, the length of lights. Uh, if you have to dash across a light, uh, that keeps people at home. It, it's, a, it's really shocking to me the reasons that people go to care. A lot of them are such simple things. They can't shovel the walk. They have trouble going for groceries. So they just become isolated and unwell, and it cascades. Uh, the cost of housing is a big issue in Canada for young people, older people alike. Uh, we have to be make affordable, so more uh, subsidized housing. There's great... Uh, places in, in places like Toronto where you have subsidized apartment buildings for seniors and you just have a home care worker living in the building and they go 
when people need help. Uh, the way we deliver home care now is very, very inefficient. We send people to your home one hour at a time. Uh, I was at a building in Toronto that was not was across the street from the one that was very organized with workers living on site. The one across the street was just a private apartment building. There were 26 home care workers coming in every day to various apartments. It made no sense, just totally inefficient. So just little things like that uh, on the, you know, the structure of communities. There's something, uh, um, to use jargon, something called NORCs, naturally occurring retirement communities. So there's a lot of part, if you drive around cities, you'll notice that some neighborhoods are aging. There's a lot of old people there. They've been in their homes since 1970s, same old family homes. So what do you do? You bring the services to them. Uh, you know, you have a little community center there uh, with the nurse who does vaccination, who checks their blood pressure, their diabetes. You make this stuff easy to access. Everything to make life better to keep people in their homes. Uh, you have programs where you have, uh, like they have in the Netherlands. Uh, if a, an, el, an older if a student will live with an older person in their home, they get free rent. The state subsidizes that. They'll, for example, give uh, money to the elder to pay for food. And then, the, you know, they become friends. They cook meals together. They chat. One of the biggest problems for older people is isolation. Uh, there's a lot of people, especially in big cities, who are house poor. They're sitting in their $2 million house and they're eating cat food because they have no money and they can't afford to leave their home because if they sell it, they'll have a rent of $2,000 a month or $15,000 a month in, in an a institution. So they're just trapped. So it's all these ways. It's about redesigning society to make it more friendly to not just to working age people, but to retired people and people who need some some health services and some help to cross the street and shovel their walk and all this banal stuff. I'm I'm kind of wondering, you know, you're you're pointing out some things that can be easily done, but also some things that I think would take time to put in place. How long do you think, let's say tomorrow the government put this on their on their books and they were like, we're going to get this done. How long do you think it would take to completely reform our system in a way this would include, you know, making sure that we're training a sufficient amount of folks to work in these homes, um, paying them enough. So putting in place subsidized structures, uh, you know, creating a digital infrastructure so that different people can provide different services when necessary. So it's also a, a huge barrier right now, the, the paperwork that goes into doing things. How long do you think it would take to put this in place? I don't know if I could put a timeline on it, but I, I could say, I think it could happen very, very quickly. I'm a big believer in the, you know, the famous tipping point theory where things, uh, when they get at a tipping point can change really, really dramatically overnight. And I'd like to hope that elder care is getting close to that, to that tipping point, because I think boomers are just not going to stand for this, for the way they're treated. So, uh, and the other part of the answer is the reality is we've solved every one of these problems. Every single thing I've talked about today, we've done, we've done it a hundred times over in little pockets around the country. That the solution to this is not, we don't need some dramatic revolution. We just need to scale up the stuff we're doing well. So these homes with zero COVID, why aren't every home copying them, their personnel policies? Uh, the communities where uh, students are living with elders, what, you know, what's stopping other cities from doing that or other campuses? Uh, I was just involved in a program at UBC during COVID where uh, 
all the medical students would go visit an elder. They were assigned a couple of elders to take care of them. Why doesn't every medical school do that as a matter of practice? This is going to be who they're caring for the rest of their careers. Uh, there are great programs where people go from the high school as part of their mandatory volunteering, go shovel the walks of seniors on uh, the five blocks around the school every day. Why doesn't every school do that? Every single solution is there, big and small. Uh, we've doubled the wages of personal support workers in Quebec. Every other province can do that. It's affordable. That pays off. So again, I, I don't think any of this thing takes much effort. I don't think it takes as much money as we need. But even if it doesn't, it does take money. Uh, to me, that's often a false argument. We're going to pay for this. You know, as we get old, we're going to pay for our care. And we're going to either pay for it from the right pocket with our taxes, or we're going to pay it from the left pocket with our private funds. Uh, it's going to get paid for. It's going to get done. But if we do it more of it publicly, it's going to be less inequitable. It's going to be more fair and it's going to be more efficient. So that's what we have to do is invest more smartly uh, in the in elder care and in healthcare more generally. Because as I've mentioned several times, that's who needs care. The vast majority of our care, about two-thirds of our spending is on people over the age of 65. And again, I'm not blaming them. I'm saying this is reality, this is life. You pay into this your whole life. You pay 50 years of taxes uh, to get insurance. And at the end of life, some people need the insurance. You know, ideally, I, I often compare it to my house insurance. I willingly pay my fire insurance every month, and I hope I never need it. I hope my house never burns down. Same thing with my health. I pay my taxes every month or every week on my paycheck. Hopefully, I never have to be in a hospital or a long-term care home. I'd be pleased as punch that I never got value for my money. But if I do need it, I want it to be there. And Canadians sort of have this naive assumption that the care is going to be there for them when they need it. And that's not true. I think that's a that's an interesting theme to uh, circle back to because at the beginning, I remember we we talked about how how the system initially, as it was set up Medicare in the 1960s, was designed for the demographics of the day and how as as society progressed, as we became wealthier, people started living longer. And now we we are in a situation where there's all these other conditions that have emerged and the system is not really adjusted to account for the needs of people. Uh, but we, we, we really need uh, to have a conversation about that in Canada and be very serious. But to end our conversation, I'm wondering if there's one story you can share with us from your reporting yeah, I think there's a story I love telling, and I actually, I always love to end my talks and interviews on a more positive note, because I know it's a depressing topic, but I like to end it with a positive story. So I, this is about Sunnybrook Veteran Centre, one of the best long-term care homes in Canada, uh, cares for veterans of the Second World War, so average age 96, uh, they all have some form of dementia. And there's a gentleman who's out, uh, they have a beautiful garden there where people, people with dementia like to wander. So one morning, this gentleman is out with a nurse, he's accompanied for his safety, and he starts pulling all the flowers out of the garden at Sunnybrook. And the, the gardener runs up and says, oh, to the nurse, can you please stop him? You know, I've just spent my time uh, doing this. Can you stop him from picking the flowers? She says, no, I can't, because this is his home and he can do what he wants. Like, imagine if we had that attitude to every bit of senior care. Let's treat this like it's their home. Let's make their life as pleasant as well. Who knew what he was thinking when he was pulling up the flowers? Maybe he thought he was 
creating a lovely Rose Bowl parade. We don't know, but it doesn't matter. It hurts no one. Let him have his dignity. Let him have his life. And let's adjust to it. So I think if we do that, uh, you know, the ultimate message of my book is that, is let's give life to our values. So I think Canadians have really good values. I think we love our mums. We love our grandmothers, whether they're healthy, whether they're in these homes. And we should want for them individually uh, what we want individually, we should also want collectively. So if we did, you know, if I said, if I was a prime minister and said tomorrow, I want everybody to be treated the way my grandmother should be treated. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We'd all have great care, right? Because I'm sure the prime minister loves his grandmother. So let's just do that. Let's give life to our values. Let's give life to that Medicare rallying cry. Nobody should be denied care because of an inability to pay. Uh, We can do that. And countries who have put given life to their values, I come back to the Denmarks of the world, they do it and they don't whine about it. They pay for it. It's affordable and life is better. Mr. Ricard, thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Headlines. I think that is a a very important uh, note to end on there. And thank you for sharing that story with us and, and also for your time today. I think Anna and I both learned so much and it's very, um, you know, we're just very grateful that you could join us. Great. Thank you. If I could say one last thing, just because you're younger people, uh, one of the most uplifting things for me during the, my promoting of the book and researching it is how younger people have taken interest in this. I think there's a a recognition and awareness in this generation that's much greater. Uh, You do know your grandparents, et cetera, because they live longer now than in my generation. And you recognize that Every one of us is going to be a caregiver, a receiver of care someday. So you've got to fix the system before you need it and hopefully do it sooner rather than later. So good luck to you. We've left you a mess. Thank you. We're going to do our best. (laughs) You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. That wraps up our show for this week. We were joined by Mr. André Picard from the Globe and Mail author of the recent book, Neglected No More, The Urgent Need to Improve the Lives of Canada's Elders in the Wake of a Pandemic. Many thanks for coming onto the show to discuss Canada's broken system of elder care and what can be done to improve the situation for today's and future generations. Today's show was produced by myself, Connor Fraser, alongside my co-producer, Anna Lazarus. If you liked today's episode, please consider making a donation to our host radio station, CIUT-FM, by visiting www.ciut.fm donate. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out our podcast of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headline. You can also check in with us on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in in the coming weeks for conversation about Britain's tumultuous political system, Canada's Arctic defense policy, and much more.